0: Hi, and welcome to Drafting Compliance. I'm Kane. he's Tom, and we talked about system and information's last time. Today, we're talking about system and services acquisition. But before we get to that, we have some beers. What are we drinking today, Tom?
1: We are drinking literally one of my absolute favorite beers, especially something you can get nationally. This is Deschutes okay. Fresh Squeezed IPA. And I'll be honest Kane, I'm a little surprised we haven't tried this. And we may get somebody who chimes in and says we have tried this already, but I don't I couldn't find evidence of it. So um this is a happened. Yeah, this is an IPA that kind of balances the fence between a West Coast and a hazy a New England okay. IPA. So it has some attributes of both.
0: There's some um, it, kind of it, thing on it. There's I'm not sure if it comes through on the label, but there's some kind of thing being squeezed. What is that supposed to be?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a hop. Oh, so IPAs are known for their happiness, right? That's so that's a hop and it's, it's indicating that it is squeezing every bitter note out of that hop or tasty note, depending on how you at least look at
0: it. If it's bitter, I, I feel, prom. Uh, that sounds promising. Um, this okay. is a, uh, bottle and, um, a friend of mine actually got me some new coasters for um, my birthday recently. I'll, I'll oh, zoom nice. in there. Uh, it's got a little fox on there, which is very cool. I've been trying to figure out what type of um, wine bottle you open with these, though, Tom. And I, I think <laughs> I have figured it out. Um, I think that this is actually – hey, look at that. There this it works is. as I advertised. Okay, cool.
1: Yeah. I'm so, going to open mine. This is 6.4%, so it's, it's a little bit high on the ABB, uh, but oh, certainly goodies, doesn't goodness. challenge us like some. And uh, what I think is curious is Deschutes puts the IBU rating.
0: Hold on, on their cans. The, the robot lady just decided to chime in with apparently a theme song here, so hold that thought for a second. I, um, yeah, let's just unplug that. There we go. Goodbye. Now that hasn't happened before. That's new. I'm just gonna pick right back up. Cool. So am I. Um, so. This has got quite a, a head on it, and um, it smells kind of orangey.
1: Yep, for sure, citrusy. This, this chimes in at 60 IBUs, which are the international bittering units. Deschutes always puts that on the bottle, which I think is interesting. Okay. You're right; it has a very gold amber look to it. It always pours with it's a beautiful cloudy. head on it. Yeah, yep, that's that hazy little bit to it. Mm-hmm. I love your your interpretation, though. Definitely has some some citrus notes. Maybe a little pineapple in there.
0: Maybe, maybe a little bit of pineapple. Maybe something. Okay, I've got I've learned now not to put my nose all the way into the glass because that <laughs> that is problematic. Um,
1: You've gotten so big, Kane. Let's. Um, should we should we try a sip? I'm excited. Yeah, there's really something else in it. there,
0: but I just can't put my finger on it. But um, something herbal. Uh, anyway, oh, herbal. Yeah, okay. Some something herbal in there. I'm just not sure what. Hmm. Anyway, let's have a go.
1: I always taste a little grapefruit when I drink one of these. I think I think it's a little um, it's got that bitter side of grapefruit to it.
0: It's definitely got bitter.
1: Tell me, Kane, does this coach your tongue? Does it invite you back for more?
0: It invites you back for more, Tom. I've yet to see a beer that does not invite you back for more. There are some. Oh, okay. We might have to try some of those on the show, actually. Um, yeah, this just—I'm um, going to take another sip. It's, it, uh, it doesn't really say a lot.
1: <laughs> you know what's interesting is—is your. Uh, your face isn't nearly as expressive around this. So I, I, start, I know sort it's of feeling it's, like it's, it's, it's passing some sort of unknown test. I don't know what the test would be, but it seems to pass it. Um, you know, I do, I do taste some complexity in this beer. Um, I think the hoppy notes are unusual in that they are very pronounced around grapefruit. Uh, I think you, you taste other citrus fruits in here too. Maybe even a little mango. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going, going really more like orange it,
0: on, on this. Yeah, it's more orange. I can, I can yeah, get Kind of like, like a tangerine. Mm. Um, I do like that this isn't a sour. This is a, a remarkable improvement over the whole class of sour beers. Yes.
1: You when and the smelled of grapefruit and citrus, famous. I was like,
0: wow, this could be terrible again. And thankfully, it's. It, I'll, I'll say this. I don't want to front run the, um, but you, you notice my facial expressions. Like, this is not the worst thing that I've drank to this year.
1: Yeah, that's good. Well, like I said, this is this is one that I have quite often. So I'm I'm glad you at least tolerate it. So what are we talking well, about today? We'll see.
0: If we've, we'll see if I tolerate it. Um, we'll see if I get anywhere beyond this. Um, but today we're talking about uh, system and services acquisition. And, and Tom, what is that under FedRAMP?
1: Yeah, y- you know this is I think what everybody would expect to be underneath the FedRAMP. Um, authorization requirement. It's it's all about how you go out and and acquire, maintain, and uh, kind of judge the the usability of your software providers. So this would include cloud service providers as well. In fact, I think a lot of people initially read it as just cloud service providers. Uh, I certainly um, would warrant that you need to read it more comprehensively because we already have FedRAMP. Um, for our cloud service providers, right? So if you're a cloud service provider doing work with a FedRAMP authorized um, uh, company, you too have to be FedRAMP authorized. We already have those sort of wrappers around cloud service providers. This is really talking more about what other software providers are in your environment that may be locally installed. Is it
0: only software providers, Tom? Because it's system and services. And I I have have to ask, does it include consultancies, for example?
1: Well, most of these controls are around, um, you know, like software development lifecycle and those kinds of things. So, I'm not going to tell you it doesn't. You certainly should should understand the requirements of security around those providers. In fact, there's there's elements of the SA family of controls that talk about how do you, what are the, the variables that you put in place to judge any of your providers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that would certainly be one, and you would certainly disqualify a number of controls right away because it's it's a service provider, not a software provider. But, you know, the vast majority of what people will be dealing with here will be software providers. You know, think, think of the things that um, run in the background and sometimes connect pieces of software together, middleware and mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the things that come to mind for me because it's often what brokers the data inside of an authorization boundary. So um, it's a lot in a little bit of, of controls. So there's a handful of controls here. Um, there is a relative small amount of prescriptiveness associated with these controls. So it leaves a lot to be interpreted. And designed I did notice that by,
0: with this one. Yeah, it, it seems yeah. to be a little more open than the other ones. But it's really going to be around software. And this is, again, it feels adjacent to software supply chain. Um, Let's dig into this one a little bit more. Can you elaborate a little bit more how, like, the updated system and services acquisition controls are actually dealing with uh, the evolving threats that we're seeing in the supply chain today?
1: Sure. I mean, I think when you look at Rev5 in general, you know, it's taken big steps to secure... um, Supply chain, and this is just another piece of supply chain. In fact, mm-hmm. um, there's discussion out on the on you know the ether webs about whether or not this should have been rolled right underneath supply chain um, because it's it's definitely intertwined. Um, so we we see a concerted effort by the federal government to say, hey, we understand that supply chain in all its forms is a likely vector for threat. Mm-hmm. So let's extend our our controls. So this is an effective, I would say, major first step in doing so. But I would expect that what you know, as we indicated, there's a relative small amount of prescriptiveness. I would expect that prescriptiveness to come in in future iterations. So I expect this to be sort of the baseline, and I expect that we will see more uh, effective controls um, with the language already provided that okay. come in here. So.
0: I was thinking about this as we were getting ready to record today's show and I saw a market report saying that um, one out of every four applications was uh, currently still susceptible to log4j. And, And for those of you who might I don't know how you might not have, but let's just in case you missed it. Uh, Log4j was a vulnerable software component from two plus years ago that um, kind of spread around information about it spread like wildfire around the internet and threat actors uh, decided to YOLO it at one point where we had mass exploitation and it was very difficult for software providers to actually know how to disclose to their customers if they were vulnerable and if you were a customer, it was very hard to know if you had Log4J, which caused all kinds of chaos. Um, Is something like the system and services acquisition going to really help with that, given that we are talking about the software supply chain, Tom? Well,
1: there's a number of things I would say that help with that. Certainly, much of what is underneath this family controls is is you collecting evidence and documentation around your providers, including Mm -hmm. known vulnerabilities. So it it puts a ownership back on the consumer to find that documentation, right? Mm-hmm. But if you go and you look at other con- families of controls, right? Um, Though th- that puts the ownership back on the provider as well. So it's r- it's really kind of an agreement that there's two two hands here, and and both of them have a part to play. Right.
0: So you need to be paying attention.
1: Model. Yep, you need to be paying attention and collecting those things. And I automatically think of. I don't know if you've ever read a, a Cisco caveat report on an iOS, but <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> but mm-hmm. one thing Cisco did very very well is acknowledge that hey, there are problems in our code, and some code may be better for you than other code, mm-hmm. and they delineate it very clearly in every iteration of their software. That's the sort of granularity that they're hoping you can get to with your providers. Like we know that. Um, we use a an outdated version of some piece of openware, right?
0: Right, or or yeah. using uh, languages that are not memory safe, right? I think we're starting Correct. to see a that's recognition a, that's that that's a probably example. a bad thing.
1: Yep, and it and it's really once you know that it it recognizes that you can put your own controls around that, right? To to limit the exposure, and that's really what much of this is about. It's it's understand what you can about those providers and put controls around those providers as needed.
0: Okay. And so then in your opinion, what are really the, the long-term implications of these updates on, on cloud security and also on, uh, federal data protection standards?
1: Right. I think what the really long-term implication is, is you need to recognize that all security frameworks, not just FedRAMP are going to put more focus on these things, mm-hmm. uh, specifically supply chain and supply supply chain peripheral or adjacent items and you can expect that your maturity around those is gonna be tested. So I I would strongly recommend that everybody has a a really substantial um, uh, program for managing providers in their organization, but expect that you're gonna grow upon that baseline. And that's really the implication here to me. I think Uh anytime you you can go back and sort of reflect on how NIST has matured over the, the decades, and remember FedRAMP is based upon NIST, it generally starts with, a, oh, hey, we, we've been thinking about this as a set of controls that we need to have. And then if you look at the next iteration, it's, oh, remember that thing we were thinking about? We've thought a lot more about it, right? And now we have very specific things. We've, we've talked with threat actor um, analysts out in the wild, and we understand now what we need to do to specifically secure against these things. That's going to happen with this. Uh, FedRAMP's based upon NIST. NIST is going to mature. FedRAMP's going to take that language over some period of usually years <laughs> and mature it as well. And add it right into the program so we'll see that but, happen in
0: but it in, also we, sounds like there's going to be an onus on software providers to change how effectively they're communicating their um, their risk profile to uh, their purchasers and to those inside of their own supply chain even if they're not fed ramp themselves like if you want to do fed ramp and you want to use a component that is not from a provider that is fed ramp um, maybe it's an on-premises component or some like software library some kind of widget um, they're still going to have to be able to answer a level of questions that we previously haven't seen before right
1: yeah that's right i mean kane we're a software uh, software as a service provider ourselves right hyperproof Mm -hmm. that's what we do just happen to be in the compliance space but we see that every day Um, the questionnaires that we were receiving even a year ago um, were much more high level than what we receive today it's much more it's much more specific to what our actual threats are uh-huh. And it's much, it's much more informative to the consumers of our product where we stand on any given set of controls generally. So you know, where we used to get uh, a questionnaire of 30 or 40 questions, we might get a questionnaire of 180 now. Right. Um, and it's it's just, it's just indicative. I think um, FedRAMP is just a piece of this, but it's indicative of where frameworks are going in general. And they're recognizing that um, they need to pay attention to supply chain in a, in a much tighter fashion.
0: I think you're right on that one. And uh, for the, if you're watching and if you're enjoying this conversation on YouTube, ring the bell to get notifications about my quest to finally find literally any beer that's drinkable, or you can subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app of choice to make this part of your monthly routine. And Tom, I also wanted to ask some specific questions about controls. Um, I want to start up towards the top. Let's, let's start with SA2. Um, how effectively does SA2 control, really guide organizations in allocating their resources for security and systems and services acquisition?
1: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about what it is first. So SA2 is basically saying, hey, does your organization recognize that it takes resources, both human and budgetary, mm-hmm. to maintain the security posture around your environment? service providers are part of that environment, right? So it's, it feels like a lifeline for those in information security that's always struggled to get budget to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's how I read this. So it's, it's SA two is all about, Hey, are you getting the support from the, from the organization that is required to be secure? And so that's what it is. So is it effective? I think time will tell how effective it is, but certainly we're going to start to see these controls tested at least at the edges. Meaning they're going to say, hey, do you have a budget? And if you can show you have a budget, maybe they'll be satisfied with that. I think in the future, we'll see just like with the other set of controls we talked about, we'll see a tightening Mm -hmm. of this. And it'll it'll start to ask for specific line items around your information security program. Right, but also it sounds
0: like around your staffing associated with that because it's entirely possible to have money and not have people. That's right. And vice versa. I think that latter is more common to have people without money.
1: Yep, well, there's always two ways to solve problems, right? Um,
0: uh-huh.
1: Throw humans at it or throw money at it. And sometimes it's a little bit of both.
0: Uh-huh. But
1: yeah, I, I think we'll see a maturity on this as well. Um, I think it'll become more effective. I think right now it's asking you to think about this and it's asking you to make sure you have some sort of plan around it. I mean, it's only, I think SA2 is maybe three um, three line items of control as all. So there's not a lot underneath it, but it certainly is interesting to say, we now have a security framework that is pushing how we resource our group. That's an interesting change of events for me.
0: It is, and we also have to document that. And something that's been throughout the entire series here, we've talked about the onus of documentation. And so what are some of the challenges that organizations really face in maintaining comprehensive and updated system documentation as required by um, SA5?
1: Yeah, SA5 is a pretty comprehensive set of controls. This is saying, hey, are you going out there and you, are you collecting the required documentation to make sure that you understand the providers that you have in your environment and what are the vulnerabilities, what are the user use cases, what are the, um, what are the methodologies for user interaction and, and authentication, all of that. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a set of documentation that you generally go and collect anyway, but there might be some prescriptiveness here that you're not used to seeing. That's that's a big difference. It, I do think it's a pretty effective um, set of controls. I, I, you know, I think about how we manage vendors in, in our environment, right? We have the vendor module underneath hyperproof, and we have okay. all the proof that you can slot underneath it. Um, mm-hmm. This is really telling you, hey, what proof do you need to go get and slot underneath this, and how often do you need to review it? Um, to me, it, it will become a much more stringent set of controls over time, too. I think we'll see. Um, you know, specific SDLC documentation required. I think we'll see drawings required. Right now, mm-hmm. it's pretty high level, um, but there is a little bit of prescriptiveness in it.
0: So again, as as time progresses, we're expecting that FedRAMP is going to become more prescriptive and less uh, interpretive. Probably based on what three PAOs are giving for feedback. Right.
1: That's correct. And one other thing I'd say on SA12 is there is a challenge associated, or SA5. I'm sorry, SA5 there is a challenge. Okay. Yeah, there is a challenge associated with any information security team and the required documentation that they already have in place, right? It requires somebody to stay on top of expiring documentation, know when Mm -hmm. a SOC 2 expires, know when the latest vulnerability report um, gets released, all of those types of things. So we already have in most organizations sort of the muscle for the, right. this set of controls. This is really about exercising it to a level that you're not used to exercising it. So if you don't have a, a comprehensive program already for the things that you wanted to collect, this this mm-hmm. is gonna become painful. You need to have that built out in your organization because this is extending that list.
0: Right, and it sounds like also a lot of those tasks could be automated, at least partially, um, to ensure that yep. people are getting reminders that, hey, this thing that you have to go do manually to proof. To produce proof or to update your proof, um, you have to go perform that task, right?
1: That's correct, and we can certainly help with that.
0: Yeah, that's very true. I wasn't thinking so much that. I was just thinking like there's a whole bunch of, there's manual work here to maintain this comprehensive set of documentation. And some of that automatically we can pull with hyperproof and hypersyncs and other things are going to require human effort. Um, The other one that I want to talk about, Tom, you skipped SA-12. I'm going to shuffle past that one. I want to talk about SA-15. How does SA-15 really change how organizations need to work with their software providers?
1: Yeah, so traditionally... I would say most organizations consume software and they didn't even use um, an ounce of their capability to read the EULA, mm-hmm. <laughs> look, at, look at how something's developed, understand the bits and pieces associated with it. Um, you know, I'm sure you can tell stories, and I certainly can, about coming across a piece of software that has some piece of very insecure ancient code in it, right?
0: Log4J, anybody, for example?
1: <laughs> Log4J would be a great example. Or default... Database passwords that are built right in. You know, it's just stuff like that. That's what this um, this set of controls is about. It's you now have to extend your expectations for secure software to the development team of the of, of the provider. That's what this is about. So you need to require that they have um, explicit security and privacy requirements built into their um, into their software. You have to make sure that. Um, they'll provide documents that that provide you their process for change and and vulnerability scanning and those kinds of things. Um, so you're really pushing controls that you already do maybe in your own environment, but you're pushing them to your service providers. So to me, it's a it's a paradigm shift that I don't think most organizations do today, and certainly there isn't there isn't well established protocol for this level of scrutiny. So, again, you're going to see questionnaires morphing to meet the Rev 5 changes. And you're going to see um, more detailed um, diligence occurring between um, consumer and provider.
0: I could see that also ultimately affecting... um the relationships between software providers, where if a software provider is unable or or unwilling to produce and provide that level of documentation for that level of assurance, it might be a reason to decide to not use them in the future, Uh just because Uh it would materially make it far more difficult to, well, first of all, have trust in them if they're unwilling to share things like that feel adjacent to best practices, if they're not best practices quite yet, but also it would be hard to maintain a FedRAMP moderate state if you can't obtain those documentational, uh, evidence.
1: That's right. I mean, we are definitely in an environment of zero trust, right? I mean, mm-hmm. th- that term has been thrown around for a decade now or nearly Yeah, a not in now. the
0: marketing term either. We're talking about but, uh, yeah, relationships yeah, at this point.
1: That's right. And, and you can't afford, you literally can't afford, um, the reputational loss because you selected a provider with known vulnerabilities. This mm-hmm. is about you overcoming, um, what, what used to be a handshake level of trust in establishing a documented, diligent level of trust.
0: Right, right. All right, well, that I think I think we've pretty much covered everything other than the beer, which was the uh, the shoots IPA, and of yeah. course, the proof that I now know how I have a way of opening beer bottles. It's cute. <laughs> um, I'm gonna have another sip of this one. Tom, do you wanna go first? Oh, well, you said, I think you've got some bias here. I think you've had this one before repeatedly.
1: I, have, I do have a bias, so I can go really quickly. This is a beer I keep in my fridge almost all the time. Um, I particularly like it when Deschutes has a multi-pack. So I'll buy a 12-pack and has four of their different beers. All oh, of their funny. IPAs are really tasty. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a good one. Uh, this is particularly good in the summer at an outdoor patio somewhere. Um, it's delicious. It's hoppy. So if you don't like hoppy, this isn't going to be for you. No. Um, and like I said, it, it straddles that West Coast New England fence a little bit i'm going to give this an
0: eight i love this beer see it's funny because the the citrus profile on the nose has increased as it's aerated over time um it's just kind of i'm thinking of like how wine oxidizes over time which is why we put our wine in blenders or aerators if you want to be precious about it um so this has become more citrusy on the nose but more bitter on the tongue and palate like it's initially was fairly fruit forward on the um when it was just recently opened um and now it's bitter it tastes like bitter beer i suppose which i guess is a category of beer um i don't like it nearly so much as when i opened it to begin with um i was thinking this was like Better than I'd anticipated. So, if I, I think Tom, is that the term you use? Sessionable is that correct for this beer?
1: Uh, sessionable is a beer that you can sit down and just
0: drink. Okay, so, all right. Uh, one okay. after the of other. This, this so feels like the kind of beer 4%. like you. Yeah, you want to get through fairly quickly. Otherwise, it's going to have that lingering, like the, the flavor characteristic ch- changes over time. Might be easier just to neck it as opposed to actually letting it. See. It doesn't feel like it's going to be a long term sipper. Uh, that's my impression of it. Um, yeah. In terms of a that score, was a
1: that was a tremendous amount of analysis there. Well, I, it was. I, I it's appreciated changed it changed over from time. From beginning to end. But, uh, yeah, uh, it, I love the wine connoisseur's take on beer. It's amazing to me.
0: <laughs> at some point, you and I are going to have to sit down and have wine again and uh, talk about that. But in the meantime, I'm going to give this a um, – jeez, oh, I've never given half points and I'm not about to start today. Um, it had a different rating at the beginning of the show. I'll tell you that much. This is now a Four. Uh, okay. it, it is a four, a solid, solid four. Um, nice, like I said, it would have been better at the top of the show, but we do our reviews okay. at the end of the show to see how things go. And with well, that, it, that's uh, oh, go ahead, Tom.
1: It, I was gonna say it might be indication that you just drink it too slow. So,
0: the problem might that's be you, Kane. probably the, the problem. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a me problem. <laughs> And with that, uh, that's all for today. So if you think you know a beer that I'd like, or if you have a FedRAMP question, um, drop it in the comments below. I will say this episode was thanks to a viewer asking if we could do an episode on system and services acquisition. So thank you so much. If you do have a FedRAMP question, drop it in the comments. Remember to like our YouTube and our LinkedIn pages to hear live interviews with information security professionals. With that, everyone, thanks so much.